Thank you, team. Thank you, saints. You may be seated. Thank you for your prayer, Anna. I appreciate that. Bless you. Well, welcome. So glad that you're at church, whether you're watching online. Hi there. Welcome. Or here on site. So pleased that you are here at church. We are in week three of our new series, Bears, Bees, Ball Guys, and Barbecues, A Life Worth Living. And what we're doing is we're looking at the life of Elisha. Elisha was a prophet from about uh, 850 B.C. And so he lived this extraordinary life. Uh, and I'm wondering if there's anything that I can learn from him and certainly if there's anything I can convey to you regarding his life. Can we really learn something from a prophet who lived over 3,000 years ago? Let's hope so. Amen? Amen. Well, especially if you're feeling stuck, if you're feeling maybe a bit paralyzed by life circumstances, by uh, the condition that our world is in right now, we can learn from him. Um, and if you're feeling stuck, I've got some good news for you. Particularly locally, Lanark, Leeds, Grenville, we are five weeks with no COVID cases added. Yeah, amen. That is worth celebrating. The Brockville Tunnel is open again. That's awesome. And uh, I imagine that means none of us are carriers. <laughs> so be encouraged. But that's not here what I'm to talk about uh, this morning. I'm talking about being unstuck in our lives, looking at the life of Elisha the prophet. And I, I tell you, if you will open your minds and consider things from his life, I promise you, you will get unstuck. And what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be asking you to complete two tasks this week. And if you do these things, I promise you, uh, you will become unstuck. I am confident that that will help you. We just sang that song, Raise a Hallelujah. Raise a praise to Yahweh. Hallelujah. Praise to God. And one of the lines is, my weapon is a melody. That's my weapon. Do you believe that? Can praise and worship really be a weapon? Does something happen when we praise and worship? Does something happen in the heavenlies that we see evidence here on earth? Now, I imagine several of us believe that. We maybe even just believe it theoretically, and though we haven't seen it practically in our lives, we want to. And so I want to encourage you to continue to press in, uh, to get serious about it, serious as Elisha was. Today's message, it's all about expectation. What do you expect? What do you expect from God? What do you expect from life? What do you expect from praise and worship? What do you expect from your loved ones, from parents, from children, from co-workers? What do you expect? I want you to consider it, to analyze it. And sometimes we have these views of expectation that come from the world. William Shakespeare has been attributed with this saying, expectation is the root of all heartache. Ouch, yikes, that's a bit sad. It might be true sometimes, but nevertheless, not very 
encouraging. I found another meme that says this, expect nothing and you will never be disappointed. Well, this one's particularly troubling to me uh, because disappointed is spelt wrong. It's got two S's and one P instead of one S and two P's. So my expectations got blown out of the water on this one. My goodness. What I'm hoping to do this morning is kind of turn your attention more to this direction. This other meme says, high achievement always takes place in the framework of high expectation. I think having high expectations, especially of our God, is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. And I want to create for us that atmosphere, that appetite for high expectation, to expect amazing things from God. It's the right of his children, his believers. And Elisha is an example of just how to do that. So today we are going to be in 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 1 to 27. And this particular portion of scripture has a lot to do with some messed up politics. Oh, what other kind is there? You might ask, well, that's for another talk, that's not today. <laughs> the book of Kings, both First and Second Kings, uh, it tells us about power and treachery, murder and double crossing and power plays and war. So if you like that type of action, you will like reading First Kings and Second Kings and even Chronicles and Samuel and the like. But if you don't like blood and gore, this can be a very difficult read. It can be a hard read at times. But again, if you are serious about getting unstuck, I want you to dig in and to see what we can learn. And we're going to start with verses 1 to 5 of 2 Kings chapter 3. It says this. Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Not as his father and mother had done. At least he got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. So I want to give you a little bit of backstory. Joram is the son of Ahab and Jezebel this notoriously evil couple in history. We know them as a wicked king and queen. Well, at this time in history, Ahab has, has died. Dad has died, but mom is still around. Joram becomes king of Israel. He got rid of his dad's evil stuff. At least he got rid of the, the sacred stone of Baal. But he didn't get rid of his mom's evil stuff. I don't know if it was that he wasn't courageous enough because she was still alive, but the scriptures point that he was actually involved in her particular brand of evil. And so he continued to do evil. Let's look at verse 4. Now Misha, he was the king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to pay the king of Israel a tribute of a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab, he rebelled against the king of Israel. So here we have Misha, the king of Moab, and he's rebelling against Joram. He knows Joram's bad, but 
Joram's probably not as bad as his dad Ahab. He's not as powerful, he's not as ruthless, not as wicked, and so Misha kind of figures, forget this, we're not paying tribute to that nation anymore. Well, what's Joram's response? I don't think so. Yeah, I might not be as bad as my dad, but I want the revenue from your country. And so this is what Joram does in verse 6. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria and he mobilized all of Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? Well, Jehoshaphat, he has this good reputation. He is a good king, a righteous king. He is a holy man. He fears God, and he wants to do everything right in God's eyes. He wants to pursue righteousness, and he actually favors unity between the two nations of Israel and Judah. So what does he say? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. By what route shall we attack, he asked. Okay, so Jehoshaphat is a bit of a strategist as well. And Joram answered, through the desert of Edom. And so I want you to see this map here and show you a little bit. Uh, Israel is this nation up in here, and they have a common border with Moab. They could have just come down and attacked from the north at Moab. But instead, the nation of Israel, uh, Israel wants to have a coalition with the king of Judah as well as with the king of Edom down below Moab. And so he wants a bigger army to come and do a surprise attack from the south side of Moab through Edom as opposed to the common border that they share. And this is a bit unusual because Moab and Edom have been friends. They are typically allies. But what the king of Edom does is say, yeah, sure, I'll join you guys, and we'll go ahead and attack Moab. Let's look at it. Verse 9. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And after a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. Well, duh, they're going through the desert. It's not very good planning to not pack extra water. And so Joram didn't do a really good job of setting these guys up for success. Let's look at his um, reaction in verse 10. What? explained the king of Israel. Has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? This is a very interesting take. What a reaction. I feel like Joram is doing something that much of humanity does when things go wrong. Blame God. What? He's got us together to, just to defeat us. He's shifting the responsibility. He's the guy who ran out of water, but he's blaming God for his own mistake. And now what he's doing is considering that the potential ruin of these three kings is going to be God's fault and not his own. Verse 11, let's see uh, the reaction. But Jehoshaphat, he asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? So he's keeping his cool. 
it's as though Jehoshaphat is asking, so Joram, did you not get the blessing of God for this military campaign? Do we not have the favor of God for this attack? And he says, let's hold on, let's just wait a minute. Can we please find a man of God to inquire of the Lord on our behalf for us? Let, let's dial in. And uh, he asks, anybody know anybody? And here we go. An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. And what this means is that he was his personal assistant. Elijah was this amazing prophet, and Elisha was being mentored by him. Elijah was this master teacher, a man of God. He, he prophesied accurately. He was godly. And Elisha was fortunate enough to have been his student. So Jehoshaphat, he says this, the word of the Lord is with him. I've heard about this guy. Elisha is a good guy. He's a righteous guy. He's quality. He's a prophet who hears accurately from God. So what do they do? So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, Why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father. Go to the prophets of your mother. So some more backstory here. Elisha does not want to have anything to do with Joram, this wicked son of Ahab and Jezebel. And in fact, they have some history. Because when Elijah was still around, Ahab and Jezebel tried to kill him. They trusted in the prophets of Baal, not in the prophets of Yahweh. And they killed the prophets of Yahweh, the prophets of God. Elijah escaped. So there's some bad blood here, some not-so-good history. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel were em enemies of God, and Joram was their son, and so Elisha's like, no way, Joram. You have not proven to me that you've changed enough to know that you're really about Yahweh. And here's his reaction. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. And Joram, he's still delusional. He's still blaming God. He's still hanging on to his excuses. And he's actually concluding defeat as well for the rest of the team. Verse 14, and Elisha said this, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve. If I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. But now, bring me a harpist. Okay, so what is going on here? We have got two out of three kings who were kind of sketchy, to say the least. We've got uh, King Jehoshaphat, who's righteous, and so Elisha concedes. He grants them the request. He is going to do them a favor by inquiring of the Lord on their behalf. And what's the first thing that he asks for? Bring me a harpist. That's what he's going to do. What uh, Elisha is doing is creating an atmosphere of worship. 
So I ask myself, well, what can we learn? What's the application in my life today? You want to hear from God? Worship. You want to get unstuck from wherever you are in life? Worship. That's the application. And that is going to be assignment number one. Take time to worship. Yes, we do it corporately on a Sunday morning together, but privately throughout the week. Take time to worship. Press in. Hire a harpist. That means, in modern-day language, plug in a good worship CD. Download some good Christian worship music and take time to listen, to contemplate, to pray, to be quiet and engage in worship. Let's see what happens historically. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came on Elisha, and he said, This is what the Lord says, I will fill this valley with pools of water. For this is what the Lord says, You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you and your cattle and your other animals will drink. No wind, no rain, but there's going to be water. A miracle is coming. It's on the way. Let's look at verse 18. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver Moab into your hands. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. The military campaign is going to be a success. So Elisha prayed, he took time to worship, he employed a harpist, he, he worshiped to help him hear from God, and God answered. So for us, when we quiet ourselves in worship, that actually opens up the lines of communication. We open ourselves up to hearing from God. And in worship, you will receive direction or clarifying thoughts on how to deal maybe with some life circumstances or some relationship issues. It's as if you receive insight from heaven above on how to interact with others and how to gain victory in difficult circumstances. So I want you to take some time to worship. Let that be your homework assignment this week. Now, if it is foreign to you, and I imagine it is for some, please just try it. As I said earlier, just download some good Christian music, take some quiet time to pray and listen for God's voice. I am confident that it will help you get unstuck. Let's look at what happens in verse 20. The next morning, about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was. Water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. Elisha heard from God, and the next day, God came through. There it was, water coming from the direction of Edom, water from the desert. No <laughs> clouds, no rain, just water appearing from the direction of the desert. Verse 21, now all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them. So this surprise attack from the south wasn't uh, a surprise anymore. Um, they had heard, and so this is what they did. Every man, young and old, who could bear arms was called up and stationed on the border. 
when they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water, water that would normally not be there. And to the Moabites across the way, the water looked red, like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings must have fought and slaughtered each other. Now to the plunder, Moab. We've got victory. So, you know, there was this trick of the eyes. I don't know if the sediment in the desert was red and it tinted the color of the water, if it was the way the, the sunrise was hitting the water. But when the Moabites saw it, they couldn't believe it was water. It made more sense to them that it was blood, pools of blood in the desert than water. And so they figured those three armies fought against each other and slaughtered each other, and they're going to go and finish the job. Let's see what happens in verse 24. But when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns, and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. Only Kir Hereseth was left with its stones in place. But men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. And now the horror, now the horrific part. Here is the desperation of a defeated king Moab, or Misha. Verse 27. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. It got horrendous. It got very ugly. The word of the Lord had come true. They had conquered Moab. However, at this one last city, things got so desperate that King Misha resorted to sacrificing the heir to his throne, his firstborn son. And commentators say that child sacrifice like this to the god of Shemosh, it broke up the coalition of the three kings. They were so horrified, they retreated. And so I asked myself, what can I learn from this? You know, I get the part about uh, worship music, you know, using that to help me hear from God and connect with God. But what about all the rest of this? What about this alliance that Jehoshaphat, this righteous king, had with two other not-so-righteous kings? What, what, a, what do I do with that alliance? So I had to think about it. And as I did, this was the conclusion I came to. That's our application. All I can figure is this. Despite any poor choices that we have made, despite any bad historical alliances that we have had, God is still with us and can still give us victory. And for me, that gives tremendous hope. The prophet Elisha, he had pointed out uh, the characters in, in this scenario. He expressed his disdain for Joram. He expressed his great respect for Jehoshaphat. He was clear about the participants 
in this alliance. So I want to ask you this. Who are you in your alliances? Are you maybe like Joram? Kind of still caught up in doing some evil stuff, some wickedness? Or are you like the king of Edom? Uh, I'll just go with the majority wherever they go. Or are you like Jehoshaphat? Oh, I'm really after pursuing some righteousness. It's what I'm about. It's, it's really what I want. And my second question is this. Whoever you are, regardless of how you define yourself in this moment, are you ready to seek God? Are you ready to pursue him regardless of your alliance and who you think you are and look to him for direction in your life? And when things get wicked, are you willing to run away, to end the alliance, to break it, and be free? The last part of verse 27 says this. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and they returned to their own land. One commentator says that the horror of this last desperate act was too much. So the alliance broke up. And there's an application for us. So remember, your first assignment this week is to worship. Take time to worship. And your second assignment is this. Test your alliances. Test them. You might conclude, you know, enough is enough. I've had enough. And you've got to run away from evil. Well, let that be your victory in Jesus' name. We're going to sing uh, another song. This next song, uh, the words are, you take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good. So I looked up the song story on this song. The story behind Sea of Victory was shared by artist Chris Brown. He says, you know, worship is a powerful weapon. It's like a counterattack on whatever the enemy is trying to bring against you. When you're facing or battling anxiety, choose to worship your way through it. If you're feeling overwhelmed or uncertain, you can choose worship. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can stand on the authority of the word of God that whatever you're up against, it is no match for Jesus. He's never lost a battle before, and he's not going to start with yours. And Chris adds this, Our song, Sea of Victory, has become one of those songs that I put in my own personal armory when I'm in the middle of a struggle or a fight. When I choose praise over fear, even in the face of overwhelming odds, I can trust that God is fighting my battles for me, and he's turning things around for my good, and his glory. And so this week, number one, worship as Elijah did to hear the word of the Lord, to receive his instruction, and that will help you get unstuck. And number two, test your alliances. And when you come up against terrible evil, turn away from them. Abandon ungodly alliances, and that's really going to help you live a life worth living going to ask you to stand to pray with me. Now, for some of you, worship will be foreign, but I want to encourage you, please engage, do it. And for some of you, 
God might already be speaking. He's already put his finger on some alliances that he wants you to let go. It might be actual people, relationships, but it might also be habits or activities that you're aligned with, that you know don't help your walk with God. And God is already whispering to you, you need to run away from that. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your spirit to visit us in a new way, for your spirit to rise up within us, to empower us to break ungodly alliances. We will worship you to hear from you, to ascribe worth to your name, to gain victory where you want us to have victory. Well, we will expect great things from you because you are a great God with a great love for each and every one of us. Have your way in our lives, I pray, in Jesus' great name. Amen.